0: God, we thank you for the victory that we find in Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for our sins. He was raised again on the third day. He conquered death. He conquered sin for us. And we're meeting here today because of that wonderful happening that happened 2,000 years ago. It's still affecting people's lives today because it's God in the flesh coming to visit us. I pray, God, that you would come in a real way continually right now as we open up your word. I pray that you'd speak to people's hearts. I pray that you would guard people's minds and hearts and uh, <clears throat> help us to concentrate on your word and what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. And uh, if you don't have your Bibles uh, there you can, uh, and you don't have an app for this, uh, you can look at the Pew Bible right in front of you, and you will find that uh, it's near, the book of Ephesians, kind of near the end of the Bible, end of the New Testament. And you can open there and uh, follow along with us. That's going to help you a little bit and really getting the message that we're going to have for you this morning. Um, a novel written called The Fall by Albert Camus, hoping I'm pronouncing that French pronunci- pronun- pr- pronunciation uh, correctly. I can't even pronounce pronunciation, much less, you know, a French name. But um, he wrote a story. It's a novel, and the character's name is John Baptiste Clements. He was a lawyer, and he fancied himself to be not only a very good lawyer, but, but a very kind one as well, a very, a very good person. In fact, a lot of times he would do pro bono work, and so he'd kind of pat himself on the back. He was doing a good job, good, good deeds. Well, one night he was walking on the bridge over a river, and at the end of the other end of the bridge was a lady. It looked like she was staring into the water. In fact, the closer he got, the more he realized that that's exactly what she was doing. And before he could get there, by the end of the bridge, she had jumped off. Well, he had a choice. Again, this is just a fictitious story. But he had a choice. He could jump in and try to save her. But if he did that, he reasoned to himself, hey, you know, uh, it's tough to think on your feet, by the way. And, um, you know, he's jumping in. He's thinking to himself, well, I'll I'll drown myself maybe. And then he thinks to himself, I'll go get help. But he thinks, well, if I go get help, I know how this works. I'm a lawyer. I might get blamed for her death. Or I could do nothing. And he did nothing. And he walked off. But then he began to be in great conflict in his life. Because after all, he thought himself to be a pretty good person, but he thought, hey, nobody saw what I did. Nobody's ever going to know as he walked off and allowed that girl to drown. Well, push comes to shove in his life. He's going through all this. And really, the author of the fall um, just simply was trying to tell us there's more going on in life than what we can see. There's a spiritual battle going on. Finally, he finds himself realizing that it's not that he just wanted to protect himself. He just didn't care enough. He just didn't care enough. And he began to realize that everything that he was doing in life was to impress other people. When no one was looking, he really was showing his true character. So one night he was on the bridge, and he was trying to convince himself that he was still a pretty good person. And he thought about his neighbor. He said, I'm a better person than my neighbor. I'm a better person than the, the, law, the lawyer that's in the office with me. I'm a better person than this. And he goes on. And he heard, all of a sudden, a burst of laughter behind him. And he turns around, and there's no one there. And the author was just trying to get across a point. There's spiritual warfare going on all around us all the time. Well, as we open the book of Ephesians, we find the best passage we know, the most complete passage we know on spiritual warfare in the Bible. Now, when we're talking about spiritual warfare, I believe the vast majority of people really want to count for something. They, They want their life to count, the vast majority of millennials that have sur- have been surveyed said they want their life to count and really make a difference in this life, but just seems like something keeps holding you back. There seems to be a wall, a barrier around you, or every time you feel like you're gaining something, somebody something yanks you back suddenly. And you wonder what those things are. Well, beginning next Sunday, or next Sunday morning, we're going to start a new series of messages called Seven Enemies of Our Faith. And this morning, what I want to do is just, teach you and give you some information about the enemy behind all those seven enemies. And that enemy is Satan. Now you think to yourself, wow, you know, uh, man, I thought you were educated a little bit and you're believing in Satan, a personal devil. Who believes in that anymore? Well, only about 5% of Americans uh, surveyed, and I think that's really, really low, but 5% of Americans surveyed said they believed in a personal devil. And so you're you're looked upon as kind of non-intellectual, but something's going on behind the scenes. There, there's something, I mean, you believe, in a, you believe rationally in a good, right? I mean, you believe in a supernatural good. And so why is it kind of off the wall to believe in a supernatural evil? And because if you don't believe in that, then you have a hard time explaining evil and suffering in the world. Andrew debonco in his book, The Death of Satan, realizes this when he says that society hates the word evil because it places a value judgment on someone else. But the Bible constantly refers to the struggle that we have with spiritual warfare. As we look at the book of Ephesians, we find that Paul spent more time in the city of Ephesus than in any other place in his ministry. Three and a half years, two different trips, two, three and a half years altogether. He was so emotional when he left them for the last time, he cried on the, uh, the riverbank. The, the bank of the lake, or whatever, and, and he began to, to cry, and they began to cry over one another because they felt like they would never see him again. Very intimate time. And so he's writing from a prison in Rome. And as he's writing this letter, he begins to remind them of their riches in Christ. In fact, the key word of this book is riches, our spiritual riches in Jesus Christ, who we are in Christ, we're in Christ, and we, we have all these benefits in Christ. Then in chapter 4, he begins to talk about the application of that, about the unity of the body, marriage and family. And now he says in chapter 6, he uses the word in, in verse 10, finally. Now, when he says finally, what he's really saying is, let me add a word of warning here. Let me add just a word to you because you're going to be doing all this in enemy territory. The reason you're in conflict is because you're in enemy territory. It's like soldiers back in the Western days and saying, you know, we want you to go and build a fort in a certain place. And oh, well, by the way, there's enemies there so you can get shot at you need to realize that you're going to get shot at in enemy territory, and that's what Paul is referring to. Yes, we have all those riches in Christ, but at the same time, we are going to be under some attack. Now, I'm going to look at this uh, in three ways this morning, three points. One One is the enemy that we face. Secondly, the battle we fight. Thirdly, the weapons that we find. General Douglas MacArthur said it best, the greater our knowledge of the enemy, the greater your chance of victory. And so, if you enter this in simplistic mindset, don't believe in a personal devil, then you are bound to lose because you don't even know who the enemy is. In fact, that you're in enemy territory. So let's look, first of all, at the enemy we face. Now, we said a few weeks ago, we, we looked at something more topically just for a moment, and we asked if you've ever been to a theological uh, class or an education, been to seminary. And so we we went and looked at the church from a seminary point of view, I guess, a Bible college point of view. And now we're going to look at the same thing with the doctrine of Satan for just a moment. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so you may be able to stand firm. He uses this phrase, stand firm, three different times. Verse 13, beginning of verse 14, stand firm, therefore having your girded your loins with truth. And so there, here's a the theme. Paul is saying, look, I want you to stand firm. I want, it's a military term. I want you to stand your ground. What, whatever you, in, in military terms, whatever you, occupy, whatever you conquer, you need to occupy. You don't need to gain ground, give up ground. Gain ground and the going back, same forth. Whatever you gain, you need to occupy and move forward in your march against the enemy. And he's saying here is that we need to stand firm in the faith. Now, the devil is a created angel. That's who he was in the beginning. He was called Lucifer. And we can read about him in Isaiah and, and the, uh, what happened to him at his fall. It says, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. So here, here was Satan's sin. He wanted to be the God, not only of his own life, but he wanted to be equal with God. Pride killed him. That's what happened. Pride caused him to be cast out of heaven. He wanted to be like God, maybe because he admired God. It doesn't make any difference. He wanted to be the God of his own life. When he attempted, Adam and Eve in the garden, the one thing he appealed to them is that when you eat of this fruit, you're gonna be just like God. So you and I, our sin, not sin, sin, sins, plural, but our sin is wanting to be on the throne of our own life and wanting to be the God of our own life. It's something we fight against constantly. Well, he fell over, pri- over his pride and then he fell with one third, 130 angels, followed him. And they're called demons today and uh, we're gonna begin a series of messages. In fact, in September 10th, on Sunday nights. Remember, we went over to the book of Revelation on Sunday nights for about eight or nine weeks. We're going to start a series of messages on September 10th, 6 p.m., on a Sunday evening called Angels and Demons. And we're going to be looking at the supernatural uh, things that are going on around us. But here we find that Satan has certain abilities. First of all, he can tempt you to sin, James James 1.14. He can destroy your life, John 10, 10. The thief comes not but to steal and to kill and to destroy. He can bring guilt feelings on your life, Revelation chapter 12. And you say, well, how in the world would he want to bring guilt guilt on me? Well, it's like this. You confess your sin. We'll talk about this more in two weeks. But you confess your sins, and once you confess it, you're forgiven, and you ought to feel forgiven. But he comes back and accuses over and over and over again. Well, he can blind people spiritually those who choose not to believe. He can steal the word of God out of your heart if you don't want to receive it, if you're just not going going to receive that part of God's word. Then he can delay answers to prayer, Daniel chapter 10, and then he can cause doubt. Next week, we're going to be looking at that one thing about causing doubt in our life and how to overcome it. And so here we find that the devil, let's read on, the schemes, it says, of the devil in verse 11. The devil means a liar. He lies to you. He puts uh, fake news, in modern day terms, into our lives, and we think to ourselves, we, we start believing things. We start believing things that simply are not true. One of the things he might say is, uh, you know, I bet you, I bet you that this is happening, and I bet you this is happening, and pretty soon, the I bet you you say that often enough, and soon you begin to believe all that speculation, and everything that's high and lofty against the the Word of God. And no one can convince you of anything else. It could be a story about a person. You think, oh, I know what's going on there. I know what's going on there. It could be something on your television set, and you're, you're in disbelief of what really happens at the end of the movie because you've convinced yourself that's just not the way it ought to be. You've convinced yourself because you've listened, in life at least, to different stories that Satan has told you, and you have embraced the lie as the truth. Now, evil and sin is very complex in the Bible and very complex in life. It's not just one thing. There's evil within me, the Bible says. James 1, 13 says, let no, no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt any man. But everyone is tempted when he is carried away or drawn away and enticed by his own lust. And so there's there's something within us because of our fallen nature that draws us to sin. Then there's evil all around me in the world. The world is, is pulling at us and, and wants us to do certain things. Then there's evil above me. In verse 12, it talks about for our struggle is against flesh and blood, against the rulers, against powers, against the world, forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Now, this doesn't mean there are a bunch of demons in heaven, you know, But it means just means are in high enough places where they can tempt us and accuse us. And so this is not something simplistic. Now, what is the power of Satan? Satan takes the evil within us and enhances it. He uh, exhorts it, he draws it out, he prods it, he tempts it. As he is, the Bible says, he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. How is he enticed? He's enticed. By, by Satan. And so it's not simplistic. So how this will lead us to defeat if we think it's simplistic. So how do we battle it? Let's look, secondly, at the battle that we fight, verse 12. Once again, notice he's already used the whole idea of armor, and so he's talking about a soldier. And for our struggle is against flesh. It's not against just flesh and blood. He's simply saying, it's not just evil within me. It's not just evil around me. It's not just that we have evil in the world and people are coming against you and they, they want to take your, uh, you, you off the track in the spiritual life. It's not that they're talking about you and trying to maybe ruin your life. It's, it's just simply saying it's not just that. There's something behind it, he says. And we wrestle. Notice, and he said, he said we struggle. That is the word wrestle. Now, we think to ourselves, soldiers don't wrestle. It's kind of mixed up his comparisons and his illustrations here. Well, really, they do, because in that day in combat, you had your sword, you had your shield, and you begin to fight with that, but soon those things will be gone. Maybe you used it on your sword on somebody or it was knocked out of your hand. The shield is on the ground. Now you're jumping on people and wrestling them to the ground. It's, it's combat. In fact, the word struggle means to have your knuckles on the ground. It's combat at a basis form. And so we find here that there's, there's things going on. Notice it says in verse 11, the schemes of the devil. We struggle against these schemes. Now, that means that Satan is very subtle, very tricky in his uh, approach to life. In fact, you know, if you tell somebody, well, you think that was maybe the devil behind it, everybody thinks, well, well I have thought about that. I guess maybe it was. So what's his MO? Mo's always the same, I think, pretty much. We see it in Genesis chapter 3. Satan comes to Eve, and he says, has God really said that? Has Satan ever told you that or asked you that? Or some person asked you that? Now, is that really in the Bible? Is that specifically word by word by word by? Did God really say that? Second step, God didn't say that at all. After he's convinced you, well, God didn't say that at all. Deny God, doubt God's word, deny God's word. Thirdly, replace God's word. He came to Eve and he says, Oh, you're not going to die? Did God really say you were going to die if you, if you just touch the fruit? Well, no, he said, If you're going to eat it. But Eve kind of added some um, legalism to it to make God more unreasonable. And so, I can't even touch it. At least I'm going to, no, you're not going to die. But God knows in the day that you eat this fruit, you're going to be what? Somebody tell me. Just like God. Same sin as Satan. And so that's what he's doing. Doubt God's word, deny God's word, and then replace God's word, always accusing you, but also accusing God. His favorite method of operation is to simply say, look, the bottom line is, folks, if he were here talking to you, he would say the bottom line is God is trying to cheat you. Cheat you out of a good time. Cheat you out of having, um, you know, big input in, in something. He's trying to cheat you out of success. He's just trying to rip you off. It doesn't pay to follow God. That's what he told Job. It doesn't pay to follow God. And so as he begins to attack us over and over and over again, it says here that the darkness and wickedness in heavenly places, Satan, what is he doing in these schemes? He's attacking through the mind. That's what he does. The Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. 2 Corinthians 4.4 talks about God blinding the minds of the unbelieving. And then in 2 Corinthians it says, for the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations, that, that's, that stuff that, well, what if, what if, what if, I bet you, I bet you, all the speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Well, what happens? Satan begins to tempt you with the little things, little things, little things, little things, little things. Little things pretty singular kind of. Asleep. It puts you to, sin puts you, small sins put you to sleep. And pretty soon, boom, something hits you big. Listen to what Bob Record says in one of his books. as he, he talks about one of his friends that fell. and He says, my friend had been a man of faith who once cared for his kingdom, his job, and his family. Still he found his heart adrift. When the temptations came knocking, well, just listen to his words. He said, and I quote, It was my inability to resist the entry-level temptations that led to last year's events. It's pointless to ask me the question, what were you thinking? Because the fact is, I simply wasn't thinking about what I was doing at all. I blinded myself to who and what I really was. My own selfishness prevented me from being loving as a husband should love his wife. And from that point, I began to detach myself emotionally from my marriage and from my children and I placed myself in this position, I was then open to the possibility of forming an emotional bond with another person. A ruined life. Because maybe, just because, didn't understand the schemes of the devil. So how do we fight? Number th- Point number three is, I promised, the weapons that we find beginning in verse 13 and 14. Um, notice uh, on your screen, there's a picture of the armor of God and as I said before at the beginning of the message, what had happened to Paul is he's in prison, and so he's writing this letter to the church at Ephesus, and he's thinking to himself, I, I want some sort of illustration. I want an analogy to describe what our defenses are with, with uh, against Satan. So he looks at the soldier, and he says, well, here it is right here. And he begins to go over the armor of God. Now, this if some of you have read uh, the book Overcoming Spiritual Vertigo that I wrote about a year ago, this, this is in that, and so... And, and that book, especially chapter 5, will prepare you for the messages that are to come during the next seven, seven weeks. It's not going to be in the book, but it's going to prepare you for it. And so what we want to do, even though it's going to be a little bit of a loss, we want to offer you that book just today only for $10 rather than the regular price of 16 or whatever it is. Okay? And so it's in the bookstore, and just keep that in mind. But here we find the different things, the armor of God, the belt of truth, Notice it says, in, first of all, in verse 13, Therefore, take up the full armor of God, that's a command, so that you may, will be able to resist the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. This was a belt, the, the loins girded, was a belt that went around the waist in order to keep everything else together. You, you lose the belt, you pretty much go into battle, you're going to lose the whole armor. And so truth holds everything together. The Bible teaches us, sanctify them in the truth, Jesus said. Your word is truth. What are we talking about the truth? The truth of the Bible, the word of God. Listen, any time you operate your life in falsehood, you are at extreme disadvantage of life. If, if you believe that 2 plus 2 equals 5 or, or 3, you're either going to cheat yourself out of a lot of money or cheat somebody else. If you believe the law of gravity doesn't exist and you try to jump off a building, it's going to hurt you. Take my word for it. And how high you jump determines how bad it's gonna hurt. When we don't have the truth of God's word and believe in the truth of God's word in our life and heart, We operate at an extreme disadvantage of life. This is what Paul is saying. Then he says, the breastplate of righteousness, of right living, because right living guards the heart. Sin puts you to sleep. Righteousness brings you to life. Watch over your heart, it says in the book of Proverbs, with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of the issues of life. Then he says in verse 15, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. There's something He's talking here about sharing the gospel. And there's something that's very offensive as well as defensive about sharing your faith. When you you share your faith, you're sharing your story. You share what Jesus has done for you. And every time you share that, it becomes fresh. You relive it in your mind. Some of you maybe have gone through at some point in your life, maybe a bitter heart. And people ask you what's happening. You say, oh, I've gotten over that. But every time you tell the story, you kind of relive it. It's the same way with the gospel on the positive side. Every time you tell the story, you relive it. And also, you're worried about your integrity, really. Think about it for just a moment. If you share at work or at school the gospel and people know what you stand for, you're going to be very hesitant to get into sin. I remember when um, I was in college and I joined a fraternity and uh, I, I got right with God. Uh, not, I'm not saying joining a fraternity is not being right with God. I'm just saying that I got right with God and I decided that instead of moving out of the fraternity house, I was going to stay in it. I mean, I was a mature Christian. I didn't realize that the danger I could, could be putting myself in and temptation. But I just simply said, you know, I'm going to stay in here and I'm a witness to everybody, share Christ with everybody's in the house. And I did that. But I discovered Because I'm I'm retelling the story over and over and over again, it's helping me. It's building my faith. And I also discovered that people were always watching, even when they say they weren't believing. They were watching, hoping what I had was the real thing. really makes a difference. Some of you right now, I hope you get one of those magnet things put on the back of your car. Some of you have those, right? Some of you, I know I do. I know some of you do because we get phone calls from people And they say, hey, somebody with a cross live bumper sticker just cut me off in traffic. (laughs) They just about ran over me. And, of course, our our answer is very simple and truthful. Wow, somebody stole their car. (laughs) Had to be, right? Somebody stole it. But when you realize it's on the back of your car, hey, wearing the T-shirt, you go around town, you go through a drive through window and there it is, Cross Life Church. You better be nice to those people, right? <laughs> You're always watching. It helps you. Your feet shod with a gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, which will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Here we find the only offensive weapon in the arsenal, the Bible. Remember when Satan came to to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, and he tempted him. The Bible says he used Scripture every single time, all three times, to ward off the devil. I uh, remember when uh, we started a church in Atlanta, Georgia. And um, in this um, church, we had a sponsoring church, the Mother Church, and it was not too far down the road from us. And so on Sunday nights, because we had not started a Sunday Sunday evening service, Pam and I would go to um, the mother church. And Ed, a fellow by the name of Ed, kind of near retirement, um, within 10 years or so of that time, he would retire. And um, he was an interim pastor. He was a temporary guy, filling guy. And he told this story. He said, back when he was in the Navy, 19 years old, he got off his ship and he went into town with a lot of friends. Now, he's been trying to live the Christian life But he's been slipping just a little bit. Been going to sleep a little bit at a time. And he shows up, and these guys said, let's go here. And a guy pulls up in a house that's a bar, but it's also a brothel. And man, he said, what hit his heart, am I going to make this decision, a decision that's going to really change my whole life? Or am I going to go back to the base when I don't even know where I have to walk? I'm with my friends. I've made these good friends. If I, if I leave, I'm going to be the only one to leave. And he decided to go in. And the madam met them at the door and welcomed all of his friends in. He was the last one. Welcomed all the friends in, and she got to him. And she looked at him and said, Young man, beware. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, That shall he also reap. Galatians six. And he was astonished, as she was. And he turned around, went back to the base. Later, went to seminary. Later, became a pastor. And at that time, was working for the uh, convention in Georgia, as an and also an interim pastor. Here's a lady that had no idea probably what Scripture was. And she quoted verbatim a passage, two verses in Galatians chapter 6. Where did that come from? But the point is, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God convicted his heart. And he turned around. As the lady said, you need to go back to your ship. That's what she told him. And at 19 years old, he turned around, went back to his ship. And she helped him, and the Word of God helped him make probably the most important decision of his life. Well, lastly, even though it's not part of all this, he says, take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, with all prayer and petition. We pray over the whole thing because prayer is what really is the spiritual warfare. We look at Daniel chapter 10 and other other passages in the Bible where they wrestle, and they're wrestling in the spirit of prayer the whole time. As we look at this, next week, we ask ourselves the question, how are we going to apply these in the next seven weeks? How do you really apply the armor of God? The Bible says, put on the whole armor of God, that you may stand against the schemes of the devil. What what are some of the schemes? Doubt. We'll look at that next week. Very important. In fact, if you're going to bring any of your lost friends to church, this would be the best one to bring them to on the whole series. Then we're going to look at temptation. Everybody needs a message on how to overcome temptation. Frustration and prayer. What about mistakes? You know, we, we've had a lot of sermons over the years, and we've heard a lot in other churches about sin. What about the things that you decide to do, and you make decisions, and they're mistakes, but they're really not sins? You meant, the, hey, hey, you meant it in a good way, but you just made the wrong decision. What about that? What about the, when that kind of guilt gnaws you? And what about suffering? Other things as well. And so I'm going to I'm going to invite you to invite your, your friends. Don't you think your friends could use some of this information? I think they could. You know, we talked about a few weeks ago about leaving the 99 and going after the 1. And leaving the 99 doesn't mean that the shepherd just totally leaves the church. But what he and goes after the 1, but it does mean we we park our preferences at the door. It does mean that we're willing to make um, the necessary effort to go after the one because sitting around with the other 99 is pretty much easy. But going after the one and finding them in the thicket somewhere may be difficult. So we leave the 99. What would have happened? I wonder if history would have been changed if a certain people would have been reached for Jesus, like Lee Harvey Oswald. Many of you maybe don't realize, remember who he is, but he assassinated President John Kennedy. How history would have changed if John Kennedy would have lived. And yet, I know the church in Fort Worth, Texas. I've been inside the church in Fort Worth, Texas, where this young man went. Two Sunday school teachers came up to a friend of mine that I was working with as he told the story of Lee Harvey Oswald, and they said, we were the church in Fort Worth, Texas where Lee Harvey Oswald visited We were his Sunday school teachers in different years. We were afraid that he was going to influence. We were always fearful. He's going to influence my kids for the worse. And we were glad when he never came back again. And they said that with tears in their eyes. They could have been the one. He could have been the one. They could have been the one in his life. And what about Fidel Castro? How Cuba's fate would have changed. History would have changed as he was a minor league ball player for the Los Angeles Dodgers, if somebody would have gotten to him with the gospel. What about Ted Turner, raised in church but not a gospel-preaching church? What if somebody would have gotten the gospel to him? What kind of money he could have spent on ministry instead of other things? What about the school shooter at Virginia Tech University? Some of those people could have been alive today. Those, in fact, every one of those students could have been alive today if somebody would have reached this young man for Jesus Christ. And yet... There are many success stories. For example, Sean Astin, Hollywood actor of Lord of the Rings. His dad, John Astin, who played the father in the TV show, The Addams Family, was an atheist. He was raised an atheist. Sean Astin was raised an atheist. But somebody considered him the one and they went to him and they shared the gospel with him. And what about this fellow, Tim Tebow? Many of you remember him, Right? great testimony for the, for the Word of God. His parents reached him. And, of course, I didn't want to have a Florida player up there without a University of Georgia player. So here is um, Ben Watson. Ben Watson tied in for the Denver Broncos and others. Very outspoken Christian. Bob, Bubba Watson, many golfers are Christians. I could name several, but Bubba Watson, somebody you might recognize, a believer in Christ. We've had, as I've, I said a few weeks ago, when we looked at different pictures of different people, I think it was last week. If you missed that, we've had the one here. 4,000s, 4,500 ones over the years. 4,500, maybe closer to 5,000. But here's one. It's not part of the 5,000, but she's one. Our chairman of the deacons, Dallas Twyford, he was a one. John Borza was a one. At one point, David Crismer, back in 1999, who received Christ and became ordained deacon last week. Manuel Adkins was the one. One time, Ava Grace Garman, age 10, recently, was the one. Who's going to be the one next? You said, Pastor, you don't understand. You live in a different world. You must, you must live on another planet than we live on. Nobody's going to want to come if I invite them to church. Nobody's going to come want, want to hear me talk about Jesus. Now, I just want to ask you something. Based and I'll give you a hint, based on what we've been talking about today, where do you think that thought comes from? I love the story Irwin McManus tells. Irwin McManus is a pastor and a um, mosaic church out in, Cal- out in Los Angeles, California. but he grew up here in Orlando. And he grew up, as he would say, probably kind of like a thug, a little bit. And, uh, but he went to church at one of the large churches here in Orlando. And he said, he described himself going in his backyard, his little backyard some nights, in the middle of the night, just just crying out to God, God, are you there? Are you there? Would somebody come and tell me if you're there or not? And he was about, he he said he was kind of close to maybe even suicidal a little bit. But yet, he kept going to church with his friends, four or five friends. And so one day, somebody did share Jesus with him while he was in college, He went into his backyard, and he cried out to the Lord that God would save him. Please, Lord, come into my heart. Make a difference in my life. And he said, oh, the floodgates just opened up. The joy of the Lord overwhelmed him. But after he got to thinking a little bit, he thought, he got kind of angry. He said, why didn't my friends tell me about this? This is the greatest thing of all. I can't believe. Excuse me. Excuse me. story always chokes me up. He um, said, I can't believe that this is so wonderful. Why didn't my friends tell me about it?" So he, you just have to know him. Read, uh, one of his books is called The Barbarian Way. Need I say more? Okay, so uh, you just have to understand where he's coming from. And he said, I'm going to look up every single one of my friends and ask them, why didn't they tell me about Jesus? So he said he he ran across this guy, best friend, Tampa, Florida, knocked on his door, and he said, um, he said, Erwin, man, I can't believe you're here. I haven't seen you since high school. How you doing? He said, I got one question for you. Why didn't you ever, I went to your church every single Sunday with you for years. Why didn't you ever tell me about Jesus? Guy was stunned. He said, well, I didn't think you wanted to hear it. I mean, you kind of, no offense, Erwin, you're kind of a thug. And I just didn't think he wanted to hear it. But he did want to hear it. And night after night, many times, he would go out in his backyard and asking God, God, send somebody because I want to hear it. They do want to hear it. They want to know that you know the truth, and they're looking at your life. And they want to know about the hope that was within you and within me. As we look at this, key point... That many of us miss. I know I did for years. It says here to put, verse 11, put on the full armor of God, a command. But yet, what he's saying is here is this you have the armor of God as a believer in Christ. Use it. That's what he's saying. Use it. You've got it. You need to use it. Just like the man in our story, the lawyer. Suddenly it dawned on him. Everything I do is just to get credit. And he realizes the warfare, the tussle behind the scenes, the wrestling that goes on for his soul behind the scenes. Now, what about you today? Everybody here can be a burden for somebody. Everybody here knows someone that you can talk to about Jesus just sharing your testimony, just inviting them to come to church to hear the word of God. But what about you today? And I know I ask you this a lot. And as soon as everybody, I'm, I'm satisfied, everybody is here that knows Jesus, so I'll quit asking. But if you were to die tonight, do you know that today that you know you go to heaven? Do you know that Jesus lives in your heart? Do you know that? If not, you don't have the armor of God on. You're just open prey to the schemes of the devil. Put on the whole armor of God by receiving Jesus today. Put your trust in him. He's not trying to cheat you. He wants to bless you. With heads bowed and eyes closed. God, certainly we know that death was arrested. And on that fateful day, when you rose from the dead... You conquered death and sin for us. And because of that, we we are here today. And we're ready to receive your word. And we're ready to receive you. So I will instruct those that want to receive Christ. Pray this prayer with me silently as I pray aloud. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for going to the cross and dying there for my sins. I open up the door of my heart. I ask you to come in. Lord, I need your forgiveness, and I want to put you on the throne of my life instead of me. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at CrossLifeChurch.com.